I should like to call your attention this evening to that incident in the life of King Jehoiakim of Judah, the account of which we read in the, at the beginning in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 36. And perhaps taking again verses 2 and 3 in particular, take the roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day I speak unto thee, from the days of Josiah, even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I propose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. But, of course, I want to take with you the entire incident. As you observed from the reading at the beginning, it is a whole and a unit in and of itself. Now I'm calling attention to this incident in order that we may continue what we have been doing now for a number of Sunday evenings. And what we've been doing is to consider uh, how one is to live in a world such as this. We are uh, trying to consider together why the world is as it is and what we can do about it. That's our controlling theme. That's always the theme of the Bible. The Bible's a book about life and about living. It's the most practical book in the world. It isn't something remote. It isn't just a story. This is a very practical book about life, daily life and living. Now then, we are considering this, I say, and we've already been looking at various ways in which people are confronting the situation that faces them at this present hour, this day of crisis, this day of calamity, this day which is so pregnant with terrible possibilities. Some we've seen are just refusing to look at it at all. They're just contracting out of it, turning their backs on it, having their good time, just going off and imagining that somehow everything's going to be all right. Well, we saw the futility of that. But then last Sunday night we were looking at those who, while they would denounce that utterly futile way of those people, are themselves in equal error because here are people who are trying to solve the problem themselves by doing this or that or the other, putting their confidence in their own wisdom, in their own might and strength, in their money, in their wealth. We saw again the utter futility to which that leads also. Anything that man relies on will certainly fail him. The Bible's full of that kind of story. These children of Israel were always relying on these other things. They often relied on Egypt and other countries. It never paid them. It always brought them disaster. Whatever it is that we rely on will certainly let us down sooner or later. When you come up against the ultimates, we saw that none of the things that we have as human beings in and of ourselves can possibly save us. 
But now here is the extraordinary thing. That while mankind in this way has spent the centuries in trying this and turning to that, and adopting this expedient and then putting its hope in that one always to fail, while all this has been going on, here confronting the human race has been this word of God with its pronouncement upon the whole problem, its indication of the one and only way of escape. Now this is the thing, that throughout the centuries this message has been there confronting mankind Showing it the cause of its ills, showing it the way of escape. It's been there the whole time. But this is the question. What has been mankind's reaction to it? What has been mankind's response to it? Throughout the running centuries, this word has been there. It's an old book, the oldest book in the world. There it's been facing the human race. But here's the question. What have they done about it? What's been their response to it? Come, let's be quite up to date and modern. With the world as it is tonight. Here is this book still facing us. With still the same old message. So I put it in modern terms and I ask. What is the response? What is the reaction of the world tonight? in its dire predicament to this message of the word of God. Well, now it is because this chapter deals with that very question, that very matter, that I am directing your attention to it. Because I'm afraid, it's but too obvious, isn't it, that the response and the reaction of men and women today to the word of God is precisely that which is described in this very chapter. Now let's look at it. Let's look back at a piece of history to see this modern attitude typified and represented so perfectly. And let's see what that attitude led to. It's a great advantage to be able to look back at history and to see how certain theories and ideas when they are put into practice, how they rarely work out. Here is a case in point. Let's look back. What do we find? Well, here's the story. Jeremiah was the last of a long succession of prophets, men whom God had raised up to address in particular his own people, the children of Israel. But the message wasn't confined to them. There was a message often to other nations as well. Now, Jeremiah, I say, was the last of this long succession. God had been speaking to his people for a number of years. But now here comes the very last in this great series. In other words, Jeremiah was uh, addressing the children of Israel at a point of very great and serious crisis. A very powerful nation had arisen, the Chaldeans. The Babylonians, they were conquering everybody. They'd got a great army, and they were threatening to come to attack and to destroy Israel. To capture the country, take away the people as slaves, 
and used them in their slave market. That was the position. In other words, the whole state and condition of Israel had never been so desperate, so hopeless, as it was just at this time when Jeremiah was speaking. They really were facing the end. They were facing nothing short of calamity. Now, it was in those very circumstances that Jeremiah was sent to address this nation. And he came with his message. And he held it before. By the time that we are dealing with in this story, he'd been doing so for 22 years. He pressed it upon them in every way that he could think of. But here is the question. What was the response? Well, you remember the details that we are given in the story. Jeremiah dictated this message that he'd been delivering over the 22 years to this scribe of his, Barak. Barak went and read it to certain people and they were frightened. They were alarmed. They said, we must let the king know at once. So they went and they told the king about this. And the king said, I'd rather like to see that robe. So he sent one of his men to fetch the robe. And he came, and there was the king seated near a fire. There was a fire on the hearth, and the king was seated there with the courtiers and the princes. And this man, Jehudai, begins to read out of this book, this scroll containing the prophecy of Jeremiah. But you remember what we are told, that after he'd read two or three pages, the king said, let me have the robe. He took his penknife and he cut off the pages, threw them into the fire and burned them. Go on, he said. The man read a few more pages. Let me have the row. Cut them off again with his penknife, threw them into the fire. And it went on until he had destroyed and had burned completely the entire book, the whole message. That was his reaction. Now I say it is because Modern man is doing the same thing in a different way that I'm calling your attention to this incident. Here I see a perfect portrayal of the modern world. I needn't waste your time in describing the circumstances. We're on the edge of an abyss. There's no question about that. Possibly the world has never been in such an alarming position as it is tonight. And here is this message still speaking to it and confronting it. But what's the response? Very well, let's look at it together. The first thing, obviously, therefore, that we have to do is this, is to consider the message. What is the message? What was the message that led this king, Jehoiakim, to cut it out and throw it into the fire and to burn it? What is this message that is confronting the world this evening? Well, fortunately for us, it is all summarized here more than once. Here's the message that Jeremiah, I say, had been delivering now for 22 years. What is it? Well, we are told in these first verses, Take thee a roll of a book and write therein all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all the nations from the day that I spake unto thee, from the days of Josiah even unto this day. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil that I purpose to do unto them. 
that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquities and their sin. It's repeated in verse 7. It may be they will present their supplications before the Lord and will return every one from his evil way. For great is the anger and the fury of the Lord that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. What does all this mean? Let me put it to you under a number of headings. It's quite clear. It's perfectly simple. There's no difficulty at all about it. This is God's message to this world this evening. First and foremost. It is a message which condemns sin and iniquity. That's the first thing about it. This was the cause of all their trouble. They were in their difficulties, they were threatened with this attack and this overwhelming disaster because of their sin and of their iniquity. That's why it's a message which condemns them. Here you see are the people, of, children of Israel, the people of God. Why are they in this trouble? There's only one answer. It was because of their sin, their iniquity. What does that mean? Well, it's this. It was because they turned their backs upon God. They'd done so deliberately. They had disobeyed God. They were no longer living their lives according to his law and according to his rules and regulations. They had deliberately turned away from that, brushed it aside, and were now living as they wanted to live and as they thought that life should be lived. That's the meaning of sin and of iniquity. It is disobedience of God. It is rebellion against God. It is the breaking of God's law. It is the transgression of God's holy will and what he has told us about how life is to be lived. They've done that and they've done it quite deliberately. And the message that God gives his servant to give to them is a message which condemns that. Points out to them that it's all wrong. That there's nothing to be said for it. That it is an evil way of living in and of itself. But it didn't stop at it. The message is not merely a condemnation for wrong living and disobedience of God and iniquity and sin. It is accompanied by a threat. A threat of punishment. It tells us, Great is the anger and the fury that the Lord hath pronounced against this people. Take the role of a book and writer in all the words that I have spoken unto thee against Israel and against Judah and against all these nations. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them. Now, my dear friends, is this clear to us? Well, I know we're living in an age which doesn't believe this, but I'm not concerned about that. I'm concerned to tell you what God's message is. God not only condemns sin and tells us to stop sinning. God gives us due warning that if we don't, we shall be punished. He has done that from the very beginning of history. It's here in the Bible from beginning to end. Man was put in a place called paradise. 
He was told quite plainly, as long as you go on living according to my law, you'll stay here. The moment you break that law, you shall be put out. And you'll no longer go on living, thus just taking the fruit and eating it. You will, the ground will be cursed. You'll earn your bread by the sweat of your brow. You'll be in perpetual conflict with evil and sin and Satan. God told them all that. He's always done so. Now, you read this book from beginning to end and you'll find that this is invariable. That God not only condemns evil ways, he announces that he's going to punish them. That there is always going to be a retribution. This is something that is experienced partly in this life and in this world, but over and above that, there is this great proclamation in the whole of the Bible that all men and women who have ever lived in this world will stand before God in a final judgment, and all who have persisted in sin and iniquity and rebellion against God will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. That's the message. It was given here. It's given everywhere in the Bible. It is the message of the Christian church. God condemns sin. God threatens punishment for this sin and for this iniquity. But thank God he doesn't stop at that. He sends his messengers, these prophets, not merely to announce that there's to be punishment, but to call men and women to repent, to see their error and their folly and to acknowledge it and to leave it and to return to God. Did you notice these terms? Listen to the Almighty God using such language. It may be that the house of Israel will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them that they may return every man from his evil way. In other words, God sends the condemnation of sin and iniquity and the threat of this terrible punishment in order to call men and women back to himself. Not merely to pronounce destruction, but to save them. To get them to realize what they're doing and what they so richly deserve and what is coming to them. And while there is still time to call them to repent. What does repent mean? Well, repentance means what I've been saying. It means you think again. It means you change your mind. It means you say, well, I see I've been a fool. I've been all wrong. I've been foolish. I've brought all this upon myself. And you turn to God and you confess it and acknowledge it. And you ask him to have pity and compassion and mercy upon you. Promising him that if he does you'll amend your ways. You'll turn right round. You'll give yourself to him. You'll live to his glory. You'll live to keep his laws. And to do all you can to be well pleasing in his sight. Repentance. And a returning unto God. That's why God raised these prophets. He could have destroyed these people at the beginning. But he raised these prophets to plead with them. To enlighten them. To warn them. And to call upon them to come back and to return and to repent. Now here it is in the Old Testament. But you see in the New Testament, isn't it much more obvious? Even before the Son of God ever began his public ministry. You get the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner. 
What was the message given to him? Well, he preached, we are told, a baptism, a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. John's great message was repentance. He warned the people. Flee, he said, from the wrath to come. He told them the position. He pleaded with them to repent, to re renew their minds, to come back to God. He says, God is going to forgive you. There is one coming after me who is going to bring the great salvation. I'm preparing the way for him. Repentance. It's a call back to repentance. But you see, it doesn't even stop at that. There is this gracious promise. It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the evil which I purpose to do unto them, that they may return every man from his evil way. That in order that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. That's what God wants to do. He wants to forgive. Go and speak. Go and write in a book that it may be read to them. All these words that I've given to you. It may be that they'll see it. That they'll repent and come back. That I may forgive them. You see the condition of forgiveness is repentance. Acknowledgement of sin and a returning unto the Lord. Now that's the message. It is the message of this gospel this evening. As we stand on the brink of such terrible possibilities, as we are in the midst of life as it were in death, here is the message of this gospel this evening. Awaken. Realize the position. While there is still time, repent, acknowledge your sin, confess it to God, come back, turn to him, and he'll tell you. That he's made a way of forgiveness in his only begotten son. That he sent him into the world to die for sins. That we might be forgiven. Believe on him and you are forgiven. That I may forgive him. Here is the message. It was the message then. It is the message now. Well now here's the question. Let's see how this king reacted to that message. That's the message. How did he react to it and his princes with him? I've already reminded you. He took it and he cut it with his penknife and threw it into the fire that was burning on the hearth. I say that men and women are still doing the same thing. That doesn't mean that they're literally taking Bibles and tearing them up and throwing them into the fire. Some people even do that. But my dear friend, you can do what this king did without doing that. There are many ways of treating this message of God in exactly the same way as regards principle. What it means is this, of course, that you utterly ignore it. That you pay no attention to it. You destroy this message quite as much by ignoring it as you do by literally throwing it into a fire. If you go on living exactly as you have been, taking no notice of this, you're in the same position as King Jehoiakim. If you don't turn back to God and have your life controlled by him, you're in exactly the position of this man and his princes. You notice the way he did it? You notice the scorn. You notice the contempt. Give me that roll, he says. Pulls out his penknife, cuts it off. Throws it into the fire. That's what I think of that. And you can see the jeering and hear the laughter of the princes and the courtiers. They thought this was very clever. He ridicules it. 
He spits upon it as it were. He hurls his contempt upon it. He laughs at it. He destroys it. He finishes it. The question, my dear friend, is this. What's your reaction to this book? Is your life based on this teaching? Is this the message that is controlling you and your whole outlook? As you face life today and as you look to tomorrow and as you think of the possibilities that may be there, what's your life based upon? How are you facing it? This is how this man faced it. This is how so many are facing it today. They're laughing at this book. They're ridiculing it. Out of date, finished, rubbish. They have no use for it. They treat it blasphemously. They say the great philosophers don't believe in it any longer. And they follow these men. These men who write their books saying why they're not Christians and so on. They have no use for the Bible. They don't believe in it as the word of God. And the masses of people are following them. They're not interested. They pay no attention. They're virtually throwing it into the fire. And they think they're clever in doing so. It's done with scorn. It's done with derision. It's regarded as a book that's full of fairy tales. Something that belongs to the primitive state of mankind. We know so much better. We can judge it. That's the attitude. The same old attitude of scorn and derision and unholy laughter that characterized this King Jehoiakim as he cuts it and throws it contemptuously into the fire. But now this is what I'm concerned about. Why do men react like that? Why did this king do that, you think? That's the question. Because his reasons were, are still the same reasons. I'm saying this every Sunday night. The human race doesn't change at all. This King Jehoiakim is a very modern man indeed. He belongs to contemporary society. His whole attitude to this is exactly the attitude, as I say, of the modern man. Why do they do it? What are the reasons? Well, they're quite obvious. One thing we can be quite clear about, it's got nothing whatsoever to do with intellect. Nothing at all. Oh, but you say that's a sweeping statement. Can you prove it? Yes, I can, quite simply. I've got two proofs which are adequate in and of themselves without adducing any others. Here's one reason. The feeling that he displayed proves that it wasn't his intellect. You see, you may read a book if you don't agree with it, you don't of necessity throw it into the fire, do you? If you throw it into the fire, you show that there's feeling there. You're governed by feeling, not by reason. The man who's governed by reason and intellect and thought, he reads a book and he gives it a fair chance and he considers it, and he says, well, well, yes, I see that case, and it's well presented and well argued, but I'm, 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 not, I'm not convinced. I'll put that on one side. I'll put it on the shelf there in my library. I'd like to have a look at it again sometime. Now, that's how a reasonable man does, but King Jehoiakim didn't do that. Penknife. Cut it up. Throw it into the fire. That's the modern man, isn't it? You see, there's too much feeling here for it to be intellect. The man's governed by, I must call it, hatred. He hates the thing. Well, a man who's guilty of hatred isn't the man who's being governed by reason. He's not being governed by intellect and by thought. No, no, there's something deeper. There's passion here. There's contempt. There's hatred. 
Now, you've already left the realm of intellect and understanding. There's one argument, but I've got another. It can't be a matter of intellect for this reason. That men of equal intellect and greater intellect than King Jehoiakim and his like believe it. What about that? If you could prove to me that the only people who have ever believed this message have been ignoramuses or fools, you'd be in a strong position. But actually you're in this position that some of the greatest brains and minds the world has ever known have believed this. And still do. Not only that, there are instances of men who once didn't believe it and then came to believe it. But they haven't gone mad. They've got the same brain, same intellect, same everything. You see, it's got nothing to do with intellect at all. And the Bible always tells us that. Man likes to think it's his knowledge, it's intellect, it's understanding. It's got nothing to do with it. It's nothing but this prejudice that leads to this contempt and hatred. It's a moral problem, not an intellectual problem. Well, what was the cause of his doing this? What is the cause why men and women still do it? Well, you know, it isn't, it isn't intellect. It's, uh, first of all, pride. Pride. Pride of intellect. And there's all the difference in the world between intellect and being proud of it. Intellect's all right, but when a man's proud of it, he's all wrong. Pride of intellect. But it isn't only pride of intellect, it's pride in general. What was the matter with this man, this king? Well, it was this, you see. He disliked this idea of any superior authority. He's a king. He's not going to be dictated to. He doesn't need any superior authority. And he resents any suggestion that he does need it. Now, this is the essence of modern men's rejection of the Bible. He says that he's been gifted with reason. He doesn't want some authoritative book telling him how to live and what to do. He knows that. In other words, you see, the second reason, the way, second way in which this pride shows itself is this. That a man has got this supreme confidence in himself. I don't want to go over this again. I dealt with it last Sunday night. He is confident in his wisdom in his knowledge, in his understanding, in his ability to order his own life in a right way and to order his whole world in a right way. And when he's confronted by a message which says, now listen to this, his reaction is, I'm not going to listen to it. Why should I listen to it? I know. I'm capable. And of course the thing, the pride is hurt still more when the message comes to him and tells him quite plainly and in an unvarnished manner that all that he's been thinking and doing is quite wrong. That he's a fool. That he's working against his own best interests. And that he's put himself into this position of suffering which is going to lead to final calamity. That's the trouble about this book. It's a book that condemns us. Here is a book that comes to every one of us and says, you've gone wrong. You've gone astray. You've been a fool. You've brought your troubles upon yourself. There's worse coming to you. The natural man, he resents it and he hates it. The very suggestion that he's wrong. There's nothing he hates more. But the message condemns us. Condemns every one of us. And this is the thing that man resents. 
that he's wrong, that he doesn't know what's best for him, that he can't succeed himself, that he refuses to believe this message that he's helpless, that he's so helpless that he needs to be born again, that he needs a new nature. He says it's insulting, it's positively insulting to say that we as we are today with all we know, that we can't do something, that we've got to become as little children. He says it out upon the suggestion. It's his pride that's hurt. But this is the message of the Bible. It comes to us and tells us not only that we're all fools and all failures, it tells us that we are such fools and failures and are in such a state that we cannot put ourselves right. It needs the action of Almighty God to put us right, and we hate it. Of course, they're ready to believe this message as long as it holds out a program for them. Jesus Christ in the Sermon on the Mount, ethical program which we are going to carry out. But you see, that's a complete misinterpretation of the whole thing. When it tells us we've got to become poor in spirit, which means that you admit you can do nothing, they don't like it. That's the cause of the trouble. Pride. Hurt pride. This king resents it. I'm not going to be condemned by this prophet. This man who's condemning me and my life and what I've done and said and who's threatening these things. It's, it's impossible. It's arrogance. It's cheek. And so he tears it up and throws it into the fire. His pride is hurt. And that's one of the main reasons still why people don't listen to this message. Instead of patting us on the back and telling us how wonderful we are. It tells us that we are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. That we are a mass of corruption. That the things we do are bad enough, but the things we think of and the things we enjoy in imagination are even worse. Instead of patting us on the back and telling us how wonderful we are. It tells us that we are born in sin and shapen in iniquity. That we are a mass of corruption. That the things we do are bad enough, but the things we think of and the things we enjoy in imagination are even worse. That there's no good in us at all. That's the message, and the modern man hates it. And that's why he tears it up and dismisses it with his contempt and arrogance. But there's something in addition to the pride. There is a depravity in man also, a natural depravity that makes him do this. Why did this king uh, resent this message so much? Well, you see, this is it. It condemns the life he was living. And he liked the life he was living. He was a king of Judah who should have been living a life according to God's Ten Commandments. But this man didn't think it that was the sort of life to live. The life he was living was a life in which he had a number of wives and concubines, in which he drank and gave rein to his sex and all his impulses and desires. He lived to please himself and to gratify his baser instincts. That was the kind of life he enjoyed. And here comes a message condemning it. Our Lord said this, didn't he? He said, this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. Loved it. Not only believed in it, but loved in it, gloated in it. And the world is still doing the same tonight. You know, the trouble about the Bible is not your great intellect, my friend. It's that it condemns your life. It tells you that you've not got to live this life of just giving way to lusts 
and desires and passions. It condemns all that, but you love that, you like it. This is what you want, and the modern man hates it because it condemns his debased and unworthy life and living. Or put it the other way around. He disliked this message not only because it condemned what he was doing, but because he disliked also what it asked him to do. Ten commandments. Moral law. Living a life of serving God. Loving God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Loving your neighbor as yourself. What a life. Look at it, says the modern man. Reading your Bible. What a life. Praying, praying with others. What a life. Stopping all that you enjoy and that you want to do. Living this narrow, straight-laced life. Ah, they say, they hate it. That's why they get into a passion. This is a book that calls you to live a life of holiness, a life of worship of God, a life of truth and justice and righteousness, a life of honor, a life that means that your word is your bond and that you don't go into another man's married life and wreck it and give misery to his little children. He doesn't want to live that sort of life. He wants to do what he wants to do and what he likes to do. The thing of the moment, whatever the consequences, he hates what he hates being condemned, he hates being called to this life of holiness. Well, our Lord has said it all. They not only love darkness, but they hate the light. Hatred of light. And it's true, my dear friend. What's your attitude towards this life of God? Would you like to live with Jesus Christ always and live as he lived? Would you like that sort of life? An end to all the lustful living and a life of denial of self, self-control, discipline, temperance, cleanliness, purity, holiness, worshipping God, studying his word. How do you react to it? Man by nature is depraved and he loves the darkness and he hates the light of God. That's why he burns the book. His whole nature is against it. But you notice, in addition to that, there is this foolhardiness and bravado. This arrogant defiance of God. Here they are with everything going wrong. Everything had gone wrong in Israel. Their army was weak. They hadn't got money. Here's the powerful enemy coming. And still, in spite of that, you see, throw the book into the fire. Rome is burning, but Nero goes on fiddling. Yes, says our Lord again. As they were in the days of Noah, even so shall they be at the end of this age. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And knew not until the flood came and carried them all away. On the brink of disaster. Carry on. Roll out the barrels. Have a good time. Yes, as I'm so pointing out Sunday by Sunday, you look at your newspaper, left-hand columns, crisis. Fifty megaton bomb to be let off. There it is. The whole world is in this convulsion. The other side. Ah, a marriage, so-called. Chopping and changing wives, living the life of lust. 
Yes, on the brink of the inferno. Carry on. The flood's about to come, doesn't matter. Marrying and giving in marriage. Eating and drinking, planting and sowing. Until the flood came and carried them all away. The bravado of this man. And can't you see it in the modern world? Why can't people even be serious if they can't become Christian? Why doesn't the whole world suddenly become sober in its awful moment of crisis? No, no, the bravado of it all. Blaspheme God, curse Christ, laugh at Christianity. Though the whole world, I say, is on the verge of going up in flames. These are the causes of burning the book. In other words, I can sum it all up in this. It's a hatred of God. The natural mind, says the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 7, is enmity against God. He is not subject to the law of God. Neither indeed can be. The trouble is, my friend, that you as you are are a hater of God. You hate the thought of him. You wish it could be proved there isn't a God. Hatred of God. That was the trouble in this man's heart. It's the trouble in every man's heart by nature. Don't tell me that you do a lot of good. Don't say you say your prayers. That's not what I'm asking you. Do you really know this God? Is your life surrendered to him? Are you living for his glory? If not, you're a hater of God. Because he asks for a totalitarian allegiance. That's why the men burned the book. But come, let me come to my fourth and most solemn comment on this incident. The folly and the futility of what this king did and what the modern man is doing. The folly and the futility of it. Listen. Then came the word of the Lord to Jeremiah after that the king had burned the roll and the words which Barak wrote at the mouth of Jeremiah saying, Take thee again another roll. And write in it all the former words that were in the first row, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, hath burned. Then Jeremiah took another roll and gave it to Barak, the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote therein from the mouth of Jeremiah all the words of the book which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire, and there were added besides unto them many like words. What's it mean? Let me put it in principle. You can burn the book. You can, as you think, destroy it. You can reject the word of the Lord. But, by so doing, you change nothing at all. You've achieved precisely nothing. Oh, the king thought he was very clever. The princes roared with laughter. They were not a bit afraid. They thought it was a huge joke. This was really a very clever thing to do, this prophet Jeremiah. This miserable man who was always prophesying these pessimistic things. This Jeremiah. This constant Jeremiah. This was marvelous. That's the way to treat him. Throw it into the fire. That's got rid of that. But it hasn't, you see. It all comes back. It's all still there. This foolish king, by doing what he did, achieved nothing. And the modern man who rejects the word of this book again does precisely nothing. Why? Well, for this reason. God remains ever always the same. 
You can say you don't believe in him. You can say that you're never going to listen to this sort of thing again. My dear friend, you don't make the slightest difference to the situation. God is not affected by your opinions nor by mine. God is from eternity to eternity. Did you notice this striking word? Thou shalt say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus saith the Lord, thou hast burned this rule, saying, Why hast thou written therein, saying, The king of Babylon shall certainly come and destroy this land and shall cause to cease from hence man and beast. Therefore, thus saith the Lord of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. You see, he thought because he was a king, he could do this sort of thing. He forgets that the Lord is his Lord, he's above him. You see, kings are not on top. There is a king of kings. There is a lord of lords. Over and above man and all his greatness and his ability, he's the everlasting God. And do what you will, you don't change him. He is the father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turn. God doesn't change. And not only does God not change, his word doesn't change. The man's got rid of it, but it's back again. There it is speaking to him once more. Yes, heaven and earth, says our Lord, shall pass away. But my word shall not pass away. When these bombs have been let off, and this universe of ours is nothing, the word of the Lord will still be there. All flesh is as grass, and all the goodliness of men as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth and fadeth away. But the word of the Lord endureth forever and ever and ever. When all man's glory is gone, and it's going rapidly before our eyes, and it's all going to go, the word of the Lord endureth and abideth forever. You can't get rid of it. You can burn it, you can do this and that, it comes back. It's God's word, it's a living word, it's an abiding word, and you'll never get rid of it. It'll always be there facing you. What a futile thing to do. My dear friend, facts abide and we can't get rid of them. And the facts you see are these. Evil and sin always lead to trouble. You... If you believe the world, you're a fool. The world says, don't listen to such nonsense. Come my way. I'll give you a wonderful life. Come, there's nothing in it. There's no danger. Come along. Do this with me. There'll be no trouble. Won't there? The Bible says from the beginning that the way of the transgressor is hard. The Bible also teaches whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And isn't it true? Haven't you proved it true already? You do evil, you'll bear the consequences. You're bound to, you can't help it. You'll have remorse, if nothing else. You'll have an accusing conscience. You'll be unhappy. And it'll lead to endless consequences. Why, our papers are full of them now. Look at these problems that are coming back into life again because people don't believe this world. Look what's happening to our adolescents. Look at the doctors and what they're saying about all this Terrible new problem that's arising. The way of the transgressor is hard. What a man soweth, that shall he also reap. This is an absolute rule. It's always been true. It's still true. 
You can't change facts by saying you don't believe them. You burn your Bible, but the fact remains. Put your finger into the fire, you'll be burned. You lose something. You lose some purity, chastity, something that's more precious than life itself. It's inevitable. You can't help it. You can't change facts. Do what you like. And then, of course, there is the great fact of death. What fools we are. If we'd got an endless lease on life, well, I could understand men playing with this word, but you know we are here today and gone tomorrow. In the midst of life we are in death. And yet here we are, fools. You've got to meet that fact of death, my friend. How are you going to meet it? Do you know? Does your modern world help you? And the answer is, it doesn't. You know it doesn't. And by saying that you don't want to be reminded of death, that it'll come soon enough without being reminded, well, how does it help you? Because it's bound to come and you don't know when. And then beyond it is God and the judgment. You see, this Bible, this book, teaches this. That this world in which you and I live is coming to an end. That this world is a world which is under the condemnation of God. God's not going to let this world go on like this. He didn't make the world as it is now. He made a perfect world. And he's going to see to it that that perfect world is going to be restored. And he's going to do that by sending his son back again into this world. He's going to judge the world in righteousness. He is going to punish all evil and all who've lived for evil. He's going to punish all sin and all who've been sinners. He's going to punish all those who haven't believed in his son and haven't repented and believed this word of reconciliation. He has announced that he's going to do that. I don't know when he's going to do it. I don't know how. I don't know the place of these atomic bombs in all this. God may use them, he may not use them. But whether he does or not, he is going to end this world. There is going to be the destruction of evil. And every one of us will stand before God in the judgment. And the thing that will decide our eternal destiny is this. Have we been reconciled to God in Christ or have we not? If we haven't, we go to everlasting destruction. Now you and I can do what we like about that message. We can burn our Bibles as Jehoiakim burned the roll, but it won't make the slightest difference. In other words, I want to end with this on this note with you. This man was utterly foolish, and what he did was futile for this reason, that what God has said always comes to pass, never fails. Our God is a God, says Paul to Titus, who cannot lie. What God says, God does. He's always done it. I've already given you what happened in the Garden of Eden. He told the men, the day thou sinnest, thou shalt die, you'll be driven out. And he was. Look at this case. Do you know that what Jeremiah said to this king Jehoiakim literally and actually did come to pass? In detail? It did. This is sheer history. What God said, God did. See it in the case of Cain. See it before the flood. 
For 120 years, Noah pleaded with the people to repent and to stop sinning and to turn back to God, saying that a terrible calamity was coming. They laughed him to scorn, but it came. John the Baptist and our Lord Jesus Christ himself warned their own generation of Jews that if they didn't repent and turn to God and believe in Christ as the Messiah, that the city of Jerusalem would be destroyed, it would be conquered by an enemy and raised to the ground, and that the nation of Israel would be cast out amongst the nations of the world. They said it, and in A.D. 70 it literally came to pass. What God says must come to pass. For God is God. And he's eternal and his word is eternal. But here's a man who defies all this. He stands up against God. Oh, the unutterable folly, I say. Why not recognize the inevitability of what God is saying to us? What's the matter with this man? Well, this man, I say again, is a fool. What's he doing? He's pitting himself against the almighty and the everlasting God. And all he's doing is to add to his troubles. For not only were all the previous words written in the book, and there were added besides unto them many like words. It's even worse than it was before because he's rejected the message of God on top of all he's done before. And that is the position of all who reject this gospel. My dear friends, shall I plead with you as I close? My reason for preaching is the same reason that we're given here. God said to Jeremiah, it may be the house of Judah will hear all the evil, that they may return every man from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Why should this king have listened to the message? Why should all of us listen to this message? Here's the answer. It's God's message, not man's. The ruler of the earth. The one in whose hands we are, every one of us, and from whom we cannot escape. It's God's message. But take another reason. The essential rightness of the message. What is there against the message of this book? Tell me, what's your criticism of the Ten Commandments? What's wrong with them? What's wrong with being told not to kill, not to steal, not to bear false witness, not to commit adultery? What's wrong in it? What's wrong with that way of living? Can't you see this? If only everybody in the world lived tonight according to the Ten Commandments and the Sermon on the Mount, there'd be no crisis. There'd be no danger. There'd be none of these horrible moral problems. If only everybody in the world believed this message, which is so right and true and holy and righteous, the world would be perfect. There's nothing wrong with it. It's essentially right. Oh, what a reason for believing it and accepting it. But listen to what it offers. It offers you forgiveness and pardon. It may be that they will return, that I may forgive their iniquity and sin. Oh, my dear friend, had you realized that? Here is a message that comes to you and tells you, though you've sinned against God and deserve nothing but punishment and suffering and hell, 
If you repent and believe in Christ, your sins and iniquities will be forgiven. They'll be blotted out. He'll remember them no more. He'll cast them into the sea of his forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath God removed our iniquities from us. He's offering you that, just as you are. He doesn't ask you suddenly to live a wonderful life and prove that you're a good man. He offers it to you here and now for nothing. Christ died that we might be forgiven. The free offer of forgiveness and salvation. That you become a child of God and an heir of eternal bliss. And to receive all the untold blessings of God that baffle the imagination. All that is offered. That is, I say, what makes the case of a man like Jehoiakim finally utterly inexcusable. If the message were merely one of condemnation, if the message were merely one of threatening of doom and disaster, well, there'd be some excuse for him. But the message goes on to offer pardon, free pardon. Tells us that God so loved us and the world that he gave his only begotten son to death for us that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God, my dear friend, would have you as his son, and an heir, and a joint heir with Christ, and will shower his blessing. That's what he's offering. Is it possible? That anybody having looked at the case of this king, Jehoiakim, having seen his unutterable folly and the futility of what he does, anyone who has heard the gracious offer and invitation of God in Christ to come, to be forgiven, to be washed, to be cleansed, to be given a new nature and an everlasting hope, surely... Having looked at it objectively in this other person, surely no one can imitate his folly. You can't get rid of your relationship to God. Very well then, recognize it, acknowledge it. Turn back, confess your sin, turn to him, tell him all about it. Plead for pardon and he'll give it to you. He'll freely forgive you. And when the calamity comes to the world, as it will come, you need have no fear. You will be already saved. You will be already safe in the arms of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. May God open all our eyes to our position and our predicament and to the amazing offer of God's grace and God's love. May we see it, ere it be too late. Amen.